Hey guys, what's up? It's Greg Trusovosti, Find Your Film Podcast. This is episode 169. Filmmakers Adam Siegel and Brian Skiba, they are they each have movies that they have that I covered and that I saw, and one of them will come with a big apology on my behalf, but both of these movies I enjoyed and recommend them to you, and I will uh, talk about them in a second. First up is Adam Siegel. He is the director and writer behind Nandor Fodor and the Talking Mongoose, and it centers on a real-life parapsychologist, Nandor Fodor, played by Simon Pegg, who investigates the truth or the lies behind this mythic Talking Mongoose in the Isle of Man. Co-stars Minnie Driver as his assistant, and it's a very also Christopher Lloyd as sort of a, a fellow parapsychologist who actually brings the case over to Nandor Fodor. The movie is based on true events. So Nanda Fordor is a real-life human being, was a real-life human being, obviously probably with us in spirit, since he's a parapsychologist. And look, the movie's comedy, but I really loved at how this film had a lot more deeper layers and meaning to it behind all of that entertainment value. I, I really ended up enjoying this movie, and it's available right now on digital if you want to check it out. Also available on digital and on DVD is this Western that I found very interesting called Dead Man's Hand. It's from filmmaker Brian Skiba, and he, his workflow, I really admire his, just, he is, a, it's a constant clip. When you look at his IMDb, he is turning movie after movie after movie. And for a person like me who loves watching these, when I was growing up, I loved watching these straight-to-video and then straight-to-DVD movies. And now with the streaming options, you have these type of movies still existing within our scope. And I really love how a lot of these indie filmmakers just make movies with a very short turnaround. And to see how much talent, even though some of their movies may be flawed, I love seeing a lot of these talented actors and craftspeople seeing how they can turn around something in a very quick, you know, very quick length of time. And I think he accomplished that with Dead Man's Hand. And I think one of the master strokes behind this film, which stars Cole Hauser and Steven Dorff in this Western movies led by Val Kilmer's son, Jack Kilmer, who I feel is a very talented actor in and of himself. And the thing is, he's not, when you look at Jack Kilmer, you don't think of a John Wayne or a William Holden from the Wild Bunch protagonist type of person. He doesn't look like a cowboy, period. And the fact that he is front and center behind Dead Man's Hand, he plays sort of a very slick gunslinger person who is good with cards, possibly, and he's has a love of his life with him in this, and they go into this town, and the town's very corrupt, and he has to face off with a bad guy and his cronies. The bad guy, the lead of the bad guys is played by Stephen Dorff. Cole Hauser plays a, a sheriff who is a possibly a childhood friend of Dorff's character. And Cole Hauser plays an, an important role in this movie as well. There's also some Indians who get involved in this movie after Jack Kilmer's character is suffers at the hands of Stephen Dorff and his men. Some really interesting stuff behind Dead, behind Dead Man's Hand. Now, again, with the casting of Kilmer, I really enjoyed. I also love the ending of Dead Man's Hand and where it went. It was pretty uncompromising. It's based on a graphic novel, 
And so this movie, it has its share. If, if you're looking for a meditative Western like Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven or maybe an epic operatic aria like a Sergio Leone's Dollars Trilogy or Once Upon a Time in, uh, in the West, you're not going to get it here. This is more of a pulpy graphic novel, indie-driven Western. So I enjoyed that. Nandor Fodor and the Talking Mongoose, going back to that, I also enjoyed the ending of that. Now, the reason why I'm talking about endings is eventually when I have time this weekend, uh, it's football weekend, when I have time, I'm going to put it in this weekend. I have filmmaker Brian Skiba talking about the ending of Dead Man's Hand, and I have Adam Siegel discussing the ending of Nandor Fodor and the Talking Mongoose. Those spoiler discussions or comments will be reserved for our Cinematics Patreon listeners, subscribers, patrons, etc., etc. So that's that. I with with the Find Your Film podcast lately, I've been thinking about really when I get to, to speak to filmmakers and actors and writers, I really want to ask more work intensive questions. So hopefully, you as a listener will have some value added, maybe insights if you're interested in directing your own feature or you're a writer, or maybe you're just someone like me who's just interested in the creative process from a person looking outside the window trying to look in. So hopefully from these interviews, even though they're short, maybe usually I get 10 to 20 minutes with a with an artist, hopefully you can glean or get some value other than the actual information about the movie itself, but gain some insightful value on the creative process moving forward with my with my interviews. Also, another element that as I'm sure a lot of you know is the movie recommendations for Find Your Film. So for the Brian Skiba interview, he talks about his love for the John Carpenter film, Big Trouble in Little China, a movie as a Gen Xer I grew up with, but I still have not seen the movie. I actually bought the Best Buy Blu-ray of Big Trouble in Little China several years ago, and I don't know where it is. I might have actually sold it back like an idiot, but tell me what you guys think of the movie Big Trouble in Little China. Is it one of your favorite Carpenter films? Skiba mentioned it as a movie he really loves. How much do you love that film? Also, for Adam Siegel, he talks about his love for the Coen brothers, and he cites the two films, Raising Arizona and and Miller's Crossing. One second. So yeah, definitely, who doesn't love the Coen brothers, and especially those movies, Raising Arizona and Barton Fink? And he, during the interview, Siegel talks about why Raising Arizona is, was a very influential film on his life. Lastly, Adam Siegel also mentions the recent theatrical release, re-release of Old Boy, a movie that, again, I mean, Anderson for years over at Cinematics has given me a lot of you-know-what for not seeing. I still haven't seen the original Korean film Old Boy, and I didn't even see it when it come out, came out in theaters recently. I, I could have. I just don't like going out. But I have seen the Spike Lee version of Old Boy. I did the press junket for that interview, um, not James Brolin, uh, Josh Brolin for that. Love that film. But who knows? Maybe I've seen portions of the original um, Director Park's original Old Boy. But let me know if you have seen Old Boy, if you've seen Barton Fink, Raising Arizona, if any of these movies are some of your favorites, leave it. Just email me, tell me what you think of these films, and we'll love to hear your thoughts on these movie recommendations for this Find Your Film episode 169. We are going to start off with Adam Siegel, and also we will close the show off with Brian Skiba. Now, the apology goes to Brian Skiba because I interviewed him 
back in July, about a month, almost close to two months ago. And it's been forever for me to actually release this interview. It was, the, the Wi-Fi was really bad. So the video, I don't think I'm going to release it. So I had to actually clip out a couple of the answers and questions in this, in this actual audio because of the Wi-Fi was bad on my end. And that's my fault. But yes, Nando Fordor and the Talking Mongoose, directed by Adam Siegel. Very interesting film. If you're looking for a light comedy, you're going to get it. Who knows? Maybe if you dig a little bit deeper and unpack some stuff, you might find a little bit more value than just sheer entertainment value, which is cool. And as far as Brian Skiba's really interesting Western, Dead Man's Hand, some really love seeing Cole Hauser. Always will watch anything that Stephen Dorff does. And again, Jack Kilmer as a lead was very interesting, and he's good in this movie as well. So Westerns are my favorite genre. Lately, I've been thinking, look, am I a movie critic or a movie reviewer? Because a lot of these movies, including movies like Dead Man's Hand, I'm looking at the Rotten Tomato score of like 36%, and I totally don't agree with that. I really love Skeep's work. He did, I think he did this movie. Yeah, he did a movie called The Second with Ryan Phillippe. And another film with, I think, Emile Hirsch and John Cusack. I should have my IMDb out called Pursuit or Pursued. And that was a very interesting movie as well. And look, on it was released last year. IMDb rating 2.8 out of 10 for Skiba's film. It's available to stream on Tubi. Look, I feel like this is, these are kind of the genres, genre movies that he does that I really enjoy. And maybe it's outside the purview of what film criticism is about. So maybe I'm just, just a average Joe movie reviewer because I really like Skiba's stuff. And we'll definitely, lastly, as far as Adam Siegel goes, he mentioned another movie he did called Chariot from 2022, which he admits is not as good as Nandor Fodor in The Talking Mongoose, but that movie seems to have a lot of ideas too. So maybe, I want, might want to see Chariot. So Skiba, Siegel, check out these interviews and hopefully you will enjoy them. And that's it. Enjoy this podcast, these interviews, and talk to you guys soon. Take care. Bye. I am Dr. Nandor Fodor. The world's foremost parapsychologist. I am not a skeptic. This is the strangest case I have ever encountered. A family living in a farmhouse claim a talking mongoose lives in their barn. Creature's name is Jeff. What do you think about them? A talking mongoose. The Irving family are peculiar. Did you observe this creature? No. No. I did hear it. We are going to the Isle of Man. I have almost 20 years of research in this field. You're here to see Jeff. Is the creature here? Well, because we can't see him. Doesn't mean he ain't here. I see. The daughter is a ventriloquist. Dr. Fodor has a tremendous skepticism. Indeed. This is an inexplicable farce. And say the wee rascal's probably watching us right now. Everybody on this island has their Jeff story. Tell me yours. You and I both know. I know Jeff. Tell him to come out so we can see him. Is that him there? What is the Irving's motive? They don't strike me as con artists. We hear with our eyes as much as we do our ears. These people are lying. I think he exists. I'm certain of it. Just 
show yourself. I mean you no harm. Please. Jeff! Just show me that you're real. Dr. Fodor, there's a call for you. It's from him. Hello? Hey guys, what's up? It's Greg Shusvasti with the Find Your Film Podcast. I'm here with Adam Siegel, the, a really interesting filmmaker who I, I'm really going to actually ask a whole bunch of questions. His latest film is Nandor Fodor and the Talking Mongoose. My first question to you, Adam, is how long did it take for you to come up with that name? Because there are times when my I, I do hesitate to actually, I might get it wrong. So talk about that title. Oh, man. I mean... The title's a bit ridiculous, to be honest. I mean, it is a story about a man named Nandor Fodor and a talking mongoose, so it couldn't be more direct. And, you know, I probably agonized for a long time over various very clever names, and I said, you know what? It's about a guy named Nandor Fodor and a talking mongoose. Let's make it very direct. And then I loved it, and then everybody loved it. And then there was a sort of a a, a studio effort to change the name at the last second, and both Simon and I were like, no, we're keeping it, and it stayed. So how do you fight the law and win? Is there, is there an unlock to that? It doesn't usually, you want the honest truth is have Simon in your corner. Usually with, when it's just me, they're like, nah. And then Simon's like, no. And they're like, okay. So that's the honest answer. Okay. So honest assessment of your film, I was watching it and I, I, I found it to be quite resonant, especially the third act. And it's one of these films that I feel is on one hand, you can take it as a light comedy, which is great. But then there are so many things bubbling inside. Am I overthinking no. or not? Can no, you- it is a, it, it, you know, <laughs> I definitely intended it to have some deeper meaning for sure. I mean, I when I wrote this script, I was going through a lot of deep things in my own life. And I, and, you know, sort of the the synthesis of how this script and eventually film came about was that I had heard this story about Nandor Fodor and the talking mongoose on the Isle of Man that was ridiculous. But I I just wanted, you know, I always thought it was just a funny thing. I was like, okay. But then it wasn't until I kind of married it to some very sort of personal, religious sort of experiences that it became what it is. And so, yeah, I mean, there's definitely some very important, to me at least, messages in the film. You talk about casting Christopher Lloyd in the film, and I just thought the bookends where he's talking to Simon Pegg, I could just do two hours of them at a bar. I know. Me too. Guinness and just talking about life. But what was your idea behind casting Christopher Worley? There's a movie that I love called Things to Do in De- Denver When You're Dead, when oh, he delivers course, an amazing monologue. What did you see in him as far as the fabric of your narrative? Chris is so great. I mean, I just wanted a distinguished older gentleman, honestly, for that role who was American. And when it, the producer started talking about Christopher Lloyd, I was like, really? We could get Chris Lloyd to do this? And he loved the script. And I had a couple of Zoom calls with him and he was lovely. And he came out and just brought this sort of very distinguished very eloquent sort of flair to that role that I absolutely loved. And he's an absolutely lovely man. We've become friends. He's got so many stories, as you can imagine. He's just a great guy. Yeah. You know, with Nando Fordor, there's so many great little uh, subplots that one of my things is this could have been a 
two hour, two and a half hour movie. Can you just talk about making it a lean narrative? Because were you ever tempted? Because there's there's so much rich stuff to glean from your story, but really ultimately you wanted to keep it lean and, and spare. Yeah. Spare. You know, well, one thing that I did always want to do with this, I still wanted it to feel like a dark comedy. I still wanted it to feel, I never wanted it to feel kind of preachy or dramatic. You know, like I wanted those moments to come about. Like, I guess if I was trying to emulate anyone and I don't, you know, not from a visual perspective necessarily, but from a, from a narrative perspective is Wes Anderson. And I love the way that his films are always housed in comedies. They're always framed as comedies, but then they have these moments that are very dramatic that come about naturally. And so I think I looked at it from that perspective with regard to how I wanted it to be edited and how I wanted it to flow and the length of it. I still wanted the audience to feel like they were watching a comedy, but then to come away and be like, oh, wow, like now that I think about what that guy actually said, man, that's that's deep. You know, can you talk about that slippery slope as far as a person trying to do their good deed by stating, hey, person A, this is the facts here before you. But then there's that flip side of sometimes a family like the Irvings, they're happy. They're OK. They're accepting. Exactly. Can you just talk about that? Well, that's push one pull. of the most important aspects of the film. And and the lovely character of Errol, played by uh, Gary Beetle, says it at one point. And he just says, I just let people be happy. Let people believe what they want to believe. And that's a part of it. And, and, and I do think that that is an important moral in life. The problem is when it starts to bleed onto other people. More atrocities have been committed in the name of religion on this planet than pretty much almost anything else. Like, let's be real. So as soon as you get into trying to force or impose even subtly your beliefs onto others or harming them because of of something that can't quite 100% be proven as fact, that's where you lose me. So that's the fine line I think you're talking about. But you know, in the end, Jeff is harmless, like this, this mythos that these Irvings have created in this whole town believe. And so that I think is another layer of it with Nandor, you know, and it's his own search for meaning. And and it's like, he's so frustrated with them and he's so angry with them. But, but in the end, he's angry and frustrated with himself. You know, Adam, if I go on to your IMDb, because I'm actually excited now, going to watch your past films. <laughs> Is there a lot of stuff to unpack from your films? Because I look at them and they go, okay, so this is a genre-based thing on this. But look, yeah. there's other things uncovered. So can you talk yeah, about Yeah, I mean, that? I don't – I don't – I never kind of set out to make simple films. Like I've taken a longer, harder road in my career for sure. I didn't – I'm just not interested in sort of superficial storytelling. It's just never been my thing. So my last film, Chariot, which – was fine. It didn't work as well as Nandor because I was really ambitious with a lot of the things I was trying to do. But I did try to convey some very deep messages in that. And for me, what's most fulfilling is not, you know, we had a premiere of Nandor, a big screening of, about a week ago in LA and had like 400 people there and had so many people come up to me afterward. I loved it. It was beautiful. It was great. The lighting, the performances. And that's great. And I, I appreciate that. And I, I, technically tried to make a great movie. But what I really appreciated were a couple people who came up to me afterward and said, you know, there's this scene and there's this line that he says, and I thought about it a lot And this, like, that's what I, because I've learned so much and my life has been shaped a lot by the films I've seen as, as crazy as that is. It's been an outlet for me to, you know, in some really messed up times in my life, films have helped me. And so that's more what I'm going for is to try to get people to think. 
regarding I don't always, your... I don't always achieve it, but that's always <laughs> what I'm going for. <laughs> you know, you said it didn't work as well as Nando, but I'm excited to see Chariot. So I'm excited Thank to you. see some of your past work. But look, you talk about messed up times in, in your life. We've all had messed up times. What were the movies maybe right off the top that, that you went to for sort of that relief or comfort or maybe that dialogue, oh, that energy? The one that comes to immediately to mind was Raising Arizona. That movie is, to me, it's a perfect film. And what that movie shaped my life in a couple ways. That's the film that made me wanting to get, want to get into filmmaking. And one of the reasons was because I came from a very prosy background, you know, of books and novels and Shakespeare and, and classic literature. And I love that style of writing. And I never had quite kind of thought of how that could be married to contemporary filmmaking. And then I saw that movie as a kid and it was so intelligent and it used the type of language that I loved in books and things like that. And I went, Oh, okay, wait a minute. Maybe there is a way to like write really intelligent dialogue in a film because the Coens are the best. I mean, there's some of the best writers out there. And then the ending of that movie just like totally just shook me. And it came out of nowhere and it was like this comedy and it was weird and it was funny and it had these kind of poignant. And then the ending just like floored me. It was just this unbelievably bittersweet ending that really made me think a lot about my life. And I was young again, when I saw that movie, I was like late teens, but it really kind of changed me in a lot of ways. So that's just one that comes to mind. There've been lots. Adam, I know there's no way to cheat that or there's no unlock or there's no way to cheat the game, but you write at a pretty good clip. Because, and I'm factoring in you as a producer, you as a director, I think you're on post or you just wrapped this yeah. movie called The Tower. I am. Uh, that said, with hard work and everything, is there an unlock to what you do? What is your workflow as a writer? Because with everything that you do, I think writing has to be that anchor for yeah. things to get off the ground. Oh, so yeah. what is, yeah, what is your daily I'm a writer. Like? I'm a writer above all else. And the trick is just don't sleep. I mean, honestly, that's it. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. But, but no, I wrote, see, I actually wrote Nandor while I was filming Chariot. I would come home at night after filming. I would, you know, take a shower and then I would sit on the couch and write for, and, and the thing with me and my writing process is it doesn't actually take me that long to write a script. Like Nandor, I wrote in about two weeks. The, pro the part that takes me a long time is thinking about it. I'll think about a script for 10 years and I'll think about all that I want in it. And I will think about the beats and I'll think about the story and I'll think about the characters and I'll make little notes and I'll, I'll here and there, I'll jot down this like block of text about a character or about a scene or something like that. And then eventually when I feel like I have enough and I'm at that like sort of like moment of artistic readiness, then I embark on it. And then it's all there. And I've thought about it for long enough that it's just connecting the dots. And it's never taken me more than three to four weeks to actually write a script. And even that's writing for 30, 40 minutes, an hour a day. My goodness. Is that, do you have to trick your body after a hard day's work on, <laughs> yeah. on, on production as far as like, oh, okay, man, so I'm no. dude, directing. I was literally just talking to somebody. I went through a kind of a gnarly breakup while I was filming the tower. And it was like, it, it, I, I was trying to explain it to, to, and I was commiserating with a fellow filmmaker that like, I honest to God, writing and directing a movie, especially an independent film, it's like being in a car crash every day. Like the amount of like of adrenaline and readiness that you have for 12 to 14 hours every single day and having to be constantly artistically prepared and have answers to every question and be able to 
fix every problem. You know, it's, it's crazy, man. It's, it, I mean, I, not to be dramatic because there's much harder jobs out there. I'm sure working in a coal mine or something like that is pretty freaking rough, but it's, it's all consuming. I mean, it's incredibly difficult. And you have uh, hundreds of people or hundred people in the production exactly. coming to you for, for answers. How do you counting on you? How do you streamline that? And then plus you life happens. You can't say, I want to stop production for a month to just relax and play video games and and, and tune everyone out. What's the, what, how do you do that? The, you know, you just grin and bear it, man. I I've started now where I will like train, like I'm training for a marathon when I'm getting ready to do a movie and I will make sure I'm in fantastic shape, meditate, you know, just get as ready as possible and go into it knowing that it's going to, it's going to be rough. And then, you know, you just, you just hang on, (laughs) you know, you just kind of do it and just like focus, you know, you just focus on what you're doing. And for me, one thing that's super important as, as funny enough is like every moment that I'm not on set, I have to have like utter solitude. Like I can't be living with someone. I can't be talking. to Like I literally leave set, go home by myself, lay there by myself, you know, like, read or write or something by myself i try not to talk to anyone like it's like you kind of just have to turn it off when you get offset oh my gosh what what happens when people when your friends say remember that phrase no man is an island john dunn said it what do you say that's not true while filming i i think uh yeah no that is definitely not the case i think hemingway had a similar quote that i would have to find but it was something like i love my family i love my children but not when i'm writing like, it's true. Like, you just don't have the, you, 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 maybe other people can, maybe there's these, you know, I, I heard that like Steven Spielberg was editing Schindler's list while filming Jurassic park or the other way around. And I'm like, ah, okay, cool. Like, that's why he's Spielberg. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what to say about that. Final couple questions. Okay. So someone watches Nandor and they're really excited to see your work. First off, the uh, two part question is, what can that person expect from the tower? And then the second part of that question, after Nandor, what should that person see next from your filmography and why? Uh, yeah. So Tower is a story about a small town in the south of the United States with a mermaid living in the water tower. And it's very dark. It's very different than Nandor. Very different feel. I, Nandor, I wanted to feel very cinematic, very classic, very period piece. Tower has all handheld shots. It's a lot of natural light. I wanted it to feel very different. It's very different. Couldn't be more different than Nandor. Uh, that's kind of me. I'm all over the place as an artist. Um, and that one, I'm just starting post. So I would say six to eight months is probably when that one would start to become a thing and come out. You know, T- Chariot is a challenging film, but it's beautiful. I love it. It's one of my babies and it's my last film. And, you know, it, it's one that I care deeply about. And so, yeah, I mean, check it out. It's out there. It's on Amazon and everything. And, you know, I think that I would always tell people to watch Nandor first because I think it's my best work. I think it gives the 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 best sort of introduction to who I am as an artist and what I'm trying to portray. And then Chariot's sort of like you know, my, my Barton Fink to my raising Arizona. Well, although Barton Fink is a much better film. Barton Fink's a classic. So yeah. Barton Fink is a classic. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, last questions, you mentioned Barton Fink, you mentioned raising Arizona right off the top of your head. Can you just recommend a film that 
that you feel is maybe underrated or is a gem that really speaks to you just for our podcast listeners to check out? Just a movie I mean, it's that not even really... under, I don't, don't even think it's underrated, I, but the way of seeing it, they, I know that Neon's been doing this sort of re-release of the original Korean old boy and it's been in theaters and I saw it in the theater. And I'm sure most of you, if you're, you're cool and like movies have seen that, but see it in the theater. It was a really unique, amazing experience. One of my favorite films. And lastly, before you go, amazing experience. I'm assuming that can qualify for your collaboration with Simon Pegg. In my oh yeah, man. I mean, Simon is just an absolute consummate professional in every way. He's lovely. Everyone on set was in love with him. I'm in love with him. He's an absolutely incredible man. And you know, I couldn't have been more lucky to work with an artist like that. He's a beautiful, beautiful actor. His performance is great. His demeanor is great. He's a great guy. And in camera, seeing Mini Driver perform in that, that pub and just seeing it, it just feels like a life is unfolding before you. Am I yeah. overstepping my bounds? It just feels no. so real. Yeah. No, Mini is. Mini brought so much to that character that I didn't even write. I talked about this at the premiere. Like, Mini was so funny. And she brought so much humor to that character that was not necessarily even in the script. She just brought it. She, like, she found it. And it was beautiful. Like, her performance, I'm in awe of her performance in this. She's really great. Adam, thank you so much for your time. Really love your film. Yeah, of course. Look, looking forward to speaking to you regarding uh, Tower or The Tower? The Tower. The Tower. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Of course, man. Nice to meet you. I don't know if I leave or you kick me out. I'm going to... Yeah, you can leave. And, and remember, don't sleep on that backdrop. That backdrop's really awesome. No kidding. No kidding about, okay? <laughs> uh, it's care. terrible. Thanks, man. <laughs> okay, take care, See you, Greg. Okay, bye-bye. I take the trigger fingers from all my prisoners. It's less likely to shoot me in the back. Roy, you don't have any business here. This is my business. Lock him up. You are going to hang for this. What happened to you? See you, Reno. Dead men strung to your wagon. Those men threatened to rape my wife. Mayor's gonna want to talk to you. Mayor Thomas, where's he at? Bishop's mayor now. Hello, Roy. I missed you by a day in Galveston. Three young men are dead there. I didn't kill no one. Get your facts straight, friend. Let's go. Not today. I ain't asking. I said not today. I've just been given news that my brother was murdered. I'm gonna give you one day in honor of your brother. Don't break hands with me. Get out of town. They're gonna string you up for killing the man's brother. We gotta get the hell out of here. You wanna join? You win, you walk out of here alive. Lose, it's your judgment day. Show them. Oh, you will pay for this mess? You killed men of the law, and there ain't no clemency for that. Reno's back. Not for revenge. Fine, Reno. You bring him to me. Dead or alive. Bishop's got 50 men securing that mine. Tell you four gonna do. We could use your help. on your horse and let's finish this. Oh,
So yeah, first off, Brian, Westerns, is has that been a big passion of yours since you were a kid? Um, they have. I mean, I, I, I grew up watching all the traditional Westerns. Um, as kids, we'd get up early and watch, uh, you know, Poncho and the Kid, you know, those kind of stuff. And so we were, yeah, so the opportunity to actually shoot a Western was was absolutely uh, thrilling. I mean, it's it's my grandfather, you know, he, he grew us up on Westerns, so um yeah it was it was really a, f- a dream fulfilled i guess you know your story there's so many different setups so how much of a a challenge was it for you it was it was challenging westerns are not easy i mean you're you're, you're dealing with costumes that don't exist anymore that so you have to find and rent you're dealing with stage coaches i mean things that just are your everyday you know when you're filming a modern piece the car is a car and a western you know and, and, and then you have those Western buffs that watch everything and they're like, ah, you know, that's not the way it was, you know, so they're difficult. They, they are difficult. They're not something you can just rush into and, and you really have got to spend time on trying to, you know, or have the right people at least to help you create this, this, this world that doesn't exist anymore. So I just loved your lead. The, the fact that you cast Jack Kilmer as your lead. Can you just talk about that decision? Because he's not your stereotypical Western lead. And I, as a huge Western fan, I, I found that to be refreshing. What did you see in him? I love that. I love that you found it refreshing because it, it was a risk. I mean, it was a risk. I, I think going into it, Jack was, um, you know, definitely it, it was, it was a character. We, you know, collectively the distributor, myself, my producing partners, we all talked about the lead and going with, you know, was it going to be just your, um, your your standard tough guy hero that you know is going to win, or did we want to go somewhere young? You know, go somewhere with the younger crowd, make them a little quirky, a little bit awkward, and and, and question: Is he going to walk away from this fight? And, and I think uh, that's what we ended up ultimately going for. So you know, as we ended up with this quirky, fun, you know, kind of lead that that has a lot of heart and passion. He's just not willing to give up. You know, he's, he's, he's going to fight to the death for his wife and, and his future. And, uh, and Jack did, I, I think Jack really gave it a, a life that was, uh, was not expected. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that you really enjoyed that because it's, it was a risk. No, Brian, just on, in a layman's terms, how important is editing as part of your whole process i mean people will ask you the question what does it take to be a great director but i'd like to know what does it take to be a really great editor because i'm sure that's a huge is that a huge part of what you do as a as a director and find in shaping your film um it is it, it is a huge part because um there's you know i think there's there's the famous analogy there's 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 three times you tell the story when making a film you know you've got the script you've got the production and the direction and then you have the edit and, and the edit's the last laugh, so to say. And so if you don't have that really strong foundation of an edit, um, it doesn't matter how good the other two, you know, iterations of the story were told. It's that last one that, you know, is, is what everybody's going to see. And so, um, yeah, so a- a- edit is, is extremely important to me and, and something that, you know, I'm, I'm still, you know, even 15 years in of editing, I, you know, I still feel like I'm always learning. I'm always going and sitting with editors that are, you know, that have edited for 50 years and they're still learning new tricks. And it's just, it's, it's, it's definitely like sculpting. It's like an art. You're just always trying to master the craft. And, um, and, and it is, it, it is, it is probably the most important step in the storytelling process, I think. So. And what's, what is your workflow like? Because you have so many projects lined up and 
you know, some filmmakers that make one movie every four or five years, no disrespect. They're probably just really working really hard, but you work really, really hard at so many, you're working with so many people compounded with so many departments. What's the unlock for that as far as being a genre hopper and working with, you know, compounded in a compounded fashion, just hundreds of people. What's the key. So. <laughs> um, uh, have kids and need to pay bills. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a, no, I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, I, I'm very fortunate. I, I, you know, God's blessed me well and, 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 you know, and I can't, you know, and, and, and it's just, um, you know, um, I think there's something to be said to somebody that, that can deliver, you know, I think there's a lot of people that it does take, you know, does take time. And believe me, I, I I'm, I'm at the point now in, in my career where I'm, I'm fighting for time because, you know, I've, I've always turned these projects so quickly for producers that come in and kind of expected it. And I'm going, wait a minute, I need my projects to grow. I need them to blossom a little bit longer. I need a little more time on set and need a little more time in the edit. And so, um, so hopefully I start getting a little more time between projects, but it's definitely, um, it, it's, it's been a blessing. And then, and then, you know, there's definitely, um, there's, there's definitely things, you know, kind of diminishing returns with having to turn projects so quickly, but, you know, it's, it's, I can't complain. You know, I, I think the big thing is, is, is when, when I work with actors, you know, we, we get along well, I, I definitely set stages for them. And so they're willing to work more and more with me. I just, I just worked with Steven Dorf again on another project called cold deck with a uh, Clive stand in from Vikings and Alec Baldwin. So it's, um, we just wrapped that last week and then, um, and then I'm out here on Yellowstone ranch, uh, directing our, um, a director of photography on a commercial that Cole Hauser's directing. So, Oh geez, I'm taking too much of your time. Very quick question before you go. A couple of things is right off the top of your head. Can you name a movie that you feel is completely underrated that you would like our listeners to check out and, and what makes it special for you? Um, underrated. Oh, let's see. What have I watched lately? That was underrated. Um, that's a surprising question. Cause I have so many favorite films. I don't know. You know, um, I think I think any of uh, anything from Sam Raimi that's early, you know, any of his early works. I, I'm a fan of Sam's, you know, absolutely. Um, um, but I can't say any specific films for sure. I mean, my, my personal favorite, Big Trouble in Little China. But you know. no, I still haven't. It's Carpenter. I still haven't seen it. And I'm a Gen Xer. Yeah. What makes it special for you? What makes it still stand that that, that test of time for you? Uh, I mean, I think Gen X people, you know, yourself and other, you know, the younger generations. Um, they may not get it, but you know, for in the eighties and, and early nineties, it was, it was one of those films that like, it was, it just, it just spoke to us, you know, it had, had cool music. It had the karate, it had, you know, had a cool, like super cool hero that, you know, just said all the right things and, you know, kind of the witty one-liners that I think a lot of people today would be like, oh, that's corny, you know, but, um, it's fun. And I still think it stands. I, I still think it stands. So. As you're leaving, you know, Dead Man Hand, Dead Man's Hand comes out on, also on DVD, I believe sometime mid-August. Do you still yeah. feel that there's a room as far as uh, physical media? Do you think it's very important as far as curation, being a cinephile? Is there still a place for physical media? Because that's, I, I love physical media myself. How do you feel about it? Um, yeah, hopefully Dead Man's Hand becomes one of those uh, like Comic-Con type things where you get the book, you get the DVD, you get it signed, you know. 
you know, uh, I'll, I'll probably hit some cons later this year. You know, I know the writers are out there at cons all the time. So I think people are, are gravitating more and more to that physical media and having something in their hands as opposed to just a digital button, you know? So uh, thank you for taking the time out for me today. Yeah, Greg, I always appreciate it. Thank, thank you. Take care. Right. Take care, man.